Welcome to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. My name is Jasmine, and I'm recording today with my good friend Matthew. Hello, Matthew. Hello, Jasmine. How's it going? You know what I always say. I am hanging in there. I'm <laughs> grateful for another day. Um, the weather is testing us, though. So we had days of peace and sunshine, and all stripped away. Um, now it's rainy, but we're here. May showers, April flowers. No, wait, that's not right. It's April showers, May oh. flowers. Oh, God. Oh, it's Saturday. Climate change has messed up all those sands, though. It'll be like 80-some degrees in April. Like, what's that? Yeah, it's, it, it, it's not good. It's not good. And we also will hear from Reese later on this hour. Uh, She wasn't able to record at the same time as me and Matthew, but uh, she will be giving us our world news story. Uh, We're recording this on Saturday, May the 20th. You're you're listening to it for the first time on Sunday, May the 21st. And again on um, Monday, May the 22nd during the rebroadcast. Uh, So in this week's episode for the local news segment, we'll be discussing um, some proposed new subway turnstiles. For national news, we'll be discussing a Washington, D.C. police officer uh, being charged with um, obstruction of justice uh, during the January 6th investigation. And for world news, uh, we'll be discussing the possibility of a new currency, uh, de-dollarization, and um, BRICS potentially taking over the U.S. dollar. So to get us started, uh, we have Matthew with our local news. Hello, everybody. Uh, The article I am reading today is going to discuss today. Um, It's titled, Can New Subway Turnstiles Stop Fare Evasion? Not Anytime Soon. Uh, this is published on hellgatenyc.com and written by Christopher Robbins. It was published May 17, 2023. A year after the MTV A year after the MTA convened a blue ribbon panel to address fare evasion, the group released their much delayed report on Wednesday. Their main finding, the single most significant thing the agency could do to cut down on fare evasion is install new gates in the subway, a process that would take years and cost billions of dollars. To mark the occasion, the MTA invited the makers of these exotic fare gates, you know, the plexiglass ones you pass through when you shell out more than $8 to get on the air train to JFK Airport, to exhibit prototypes in Grand Central's Vanderbilt Hall. But as MTA CEO Jeno Lieber told the assembled press, these gates will not be in subway stations anytime soon, if ever. Obviously, that kind of a move at that kind of a scale is going to take a while, Lieber said, of installing new gates in all 472 472 subway stations. After all, this is an agency that is still in the process of spending nearly a billion dollars to implement a years-delayed omni-tap-to-pay system on their current turnstiles. Would they replace the readers, reconfigure them for new gates? Who knows? The The MTA is currently in discussions with these companies. In the meantime, 
Lieber pointed to some low-tech fixes the agency has recently implemented, like the civilian guards who stand at the gates of around 30 stations, uh, the cost being $1 million a month, and making it considerably harder to exit the system using the emergency exits. The latter of which makes sense if you're the agency trying to collect more money, but doesn't sound too good if you have a genuine emergency during rush hour. As of now, we're going to be implementing delays on certain as of now, we're going to be implementing delays on certain of those exit doors. When you push the push bar and try to get out and open that gate, there's going to be a delay of 30 seconds plus, Lieber announced. That has to do with the fire code. We're in negotiations with the code authorities in New York. The panel, made up of a mixture of former law enforcement officials, nonprofit executives, and Department of Education Chancellor David Banks, released their work as the city is in the midst of a massive crackdown on low-level offenses in the subway system, which now has more police than ever before. And it's gross. Uh, that was my own comment. Fair evasion enforcement should not be a means of criminalizing poverty, the panel's co-chair, Rosemond Pierre Lewis, told reporters. Before adding that another of the panel's major recommendations was doubling the eligibility window of the city's fair fares program that gives half-priced metro cards to low-income New Yorkers, something the city's city council's leadership is currently fighting for in this year's budget. We asked the mayor's office about their position and they have not yet responded. Shouldn't all mass transit be free? That debate is not the topic of this report, the panel writes. But if the status quo of fare evasion in the system is some $690 million lost in 2022, $315 million lost on buses, $285 million on subways, $46 million from toll evaders, and $44 million on commuter rail, it is also a policing, policing model that overwhelms overwhelmingly targets people of color in poor neighborhoods. In the last quarter of 2022, 93% of the people arrested in the system for fare evasion were Black or Latino. The report does not meaningfully engage with the NYPD's role in perpetuating this kind of enforcement, other than to say it shouldn't happen. When Hellgate asked at the press conference if this state of affairs was acceptable to the MTA's leadership, we were directed to the group's recommendation to expand fare fares eligibility. Another reporter asked if the MTA would tell the NYPD to back off given how much they have ramped up enforcement. No, I mean to the contrary, Lieber replied. The NYPD Transit Bureau under Michael Kemper is very forward-thinking and a great partner for us. The report also identifies different types of fare evaders. Opportunists, riders angry about a broken metro card machine, poor New Yorkers, students, and the determined evader, who should be the target of precision policing, according to the panel but does not break down what percentage of fare evasion can be attributed to each type. Probably because that kind of analysis is impossible with the methodology of how they came up with their figures in the first place. Ten observers spread across the system conducting 600 one-hour surveys every quarter. While poverty is certainly not the only reason people evade, research and common sense confirm that there is indeed a connection between poverty and fare evasion, the report states. Emphasis there's. According to the report, fare evasion rates are highest on the bus system. Some 37% of riders don't pay. Data from the Riders Alliance shows that bus riders in New York City tend to be poorer than their peers who use other forms of mass transit. They have an average income of less than $30,000 a year, and more than half are immigrants. Yet these riders are treated to the slowest buses in the country. We asked if improving the service might convince more riders that their fare was worth something other than reliably interminable, sometimes life-altering delays. We don't need fare evasion as a motivation to offer first-class service. 
We're at the best subway performance in 10 years, Lieber replied, before noting that indeed the bus system needed more work and that the agency was trying to target things at block bus speeds. One thing the panel did not really consider is spending all these resources on stopping fare evasion. Is spending all these resources on stopping fare evasion really worth it? Couldn't we try shifting money from policing to housing or education or literally anything else? Not according to the panel. Anyone advocating for increased civilianization of invasion enforcement, as we do, should not expect it to lower the cost of policing. The report says on one of its final pages under the heading, a note about ROI. The report continued, the ROI from civilization is that police can spend more time addressing serious crime when they spend less time on invasion enforcement. Um, Yeah, so essentially a lot more fuckery from uh, New York City and the MTA system, and it continues to be a mess. Um, What are your thoughts on... I mean, first of all, the whole concept of quote-unquote precision policing is absurd. It's just stop and frisk continued. And another name, um, these people are harassing us, um, harassing poor black and brown New Yorkers, and it's pretty disgusting. And it continues to be. And Adams is an advocate for the cops, putting more cops on the subway. I mean, the daily commute these days is pretty... They're everywhere. Um, They're on their phones, they're at the gates, and they're just very threatening. Um... And they are not making the subway any safer. They're really not. I mean, and that's, I guess, breaking news from me that I don't like seeing them there either. And it it does seem to me like there's so much money that is put towards criminalizing certain things where it's like you could spend that money to like, make certain services free or lower cost or like improve the quality of the service, like literally anything. But there's all of this, all of these resources being invested into something that I don't think ultimately will make that much of a difference. And I don't know. The stat came out $29 million per day uh, is what we spend on law enforcement in, in New York city for the NYPD. That, and I think, um, if I'm not mistaken, is $29 million that mostly goes to not NYC uh, because those people live in Jersey, uh, they live a little more up uh, north and in Long Island, and they come in, take all of our tax money, um, and harass us. And the budget keeps getting bloated. Um, I believe the NYPD just defended their overtime bloat that they were just like uh, dealing with the budget. Um, they defended it. Uh, because the hugest, uh, the biggest parts that break the budget um, for the NYPD were overtime and uh, settling criminal com- or complaints against them. Um, so they get to harass us, they get sued, and then we pay uh, for their defense, and it's a circle. Um, these turnstiles are just shiny new objects to distract us from being policed, I guess. Um, we know the air train is like trash. And it's no reason why we pay extra for that either. So that's a menace. Um, they should be working on improving the safety of the trains, um, thinking of safety of civilians rather than like the policing of them. One of the things that jumped out to me was this BS they talking about making a, a delay for the emergency exit. Yeah, no. People are going to die. We delay just had the subway shooting. 
not that long ago you know if you got to get out you got to get out having something where oh it's a 30 second delay or more that that's going to get jacked up something's going to happen where it doesn't release at all and you know will it have been worth it because oh like you saved some money and even it's also um in the article they show a photo of the guards at the gates and like i think they're just putting people in like potential harm again like it's just making it more antagonistic new yorkers are used to just kind of pushing out through the door especially if it's a heavier time of traffic what are these people doing like i feel like it's going to lead to more assaults uh just as a means of policing and then the police get to arrest more new yorkers um i don't know what's happening in the city it feels very scary yeah it's it's becoming increasingly dystopian and i do i don't we haven't talked about it on this show but yeah they have made a change that i don't think it's happened at all the stations but making it so the mta workers that would normally be in the booth have to be outside of the booth and i'm like that is so i think that's so foolish on so many Mm -hmm. different levels because for one you're right it is going to increase the number of confrontations that they have because let's face it, some people really they need to be in the booth. Yeah, like, they're in the booth for a reason sometimes. Yeah, and it's like my friend was saying at one of the stops near where we live, there was one a woman who came out of the booth and she was like mocking people, giving people a hard time. I'm like, she gonna get socked in the face, you this know? Like New she's York out City. here like just being rude, being like crack, like cracking like nasty jokes at people like just being antagonistic and i'm like listen not for nothing when you're out commuting whatever you don't know what somebody might have on them what might be going through their mind being in that environment where you're just exposed to whatever like that's just a mess waiting to happen at least if you're inside of the thing it can't escalate beyond a certain point and also if you need help the best thing, you know, like if there's ever like a kid that gets lost, one of the best things you can do is just stay put. It's like if you're stationary, people know where they can go if they need right. help. Yeah. If you're uh, wandering around, it's like you're not going to necessarily know like where to go give assistance. You know, like you could have a call button or something or a camera where like people know how to get your attention. But it makes sense to have someone be in a space where you know that's where they're at um, to get help. And it's like, what I'm noticing, it's like this also this dissonance that's happening. Well, it's not. I, I know why it's happening. Like, Adams is speaking about the city and, like, trashing it in terms of, like, he has to give a reason for why he wants to increase the policing presence. And it's all why about, like, oh, it's so dangerous. The only time it feels more threatening is because of the cops. I, it's like a very clear thing if you live in the city and you are level-headed. There have always been people who have struggled throughout the city with mental health crises, whatever. They are in house neighbors. Like there are issues at play in the city that are very deep and systemic. Um, but I've never felt a sense of fear for my life uh, in these areas. Going to work every day, going to school, doing whatever, living life. It's been fine. But as soon as we turn up the policing, it becomes a very scary time. Um, it's the presence of guns on the train with the cops. I don't trust them. 
I we see how they treat us. They are very aggressive. Um, there are more of them, and there's no one fighting back uh, at a higher level. It's very much left to us. Um, and when we go, I think we talked about it maybe the last time I was on, but like the protests in France are different. These people are militarized. These people want to fight. These are white supremacists coming in from Long Island ready to hurt us. Um, and they want to hurt us. And it's very scary. Uh, so we have to really pick our battles when we can um, and hopefully swell our numbers and push back because we are being very heavily policed. And that's where all of this um, crime is coming from. It's not coming from the citizens. Yeah, I don't know. It's like I wish that having more of a barrier like between the trains like so that you can't so easily fall on the tracks or get pushed on them that i think makes a lot of sense but these new gadgets for fare evasion or them taking away benches and making things where you cannot sit or lean or anything like it's just all so it's Mm anti-poor and it it creates a reason like you're saying for there to be more policing and more aggression just towards regular people primarily black and brown primarily poor immigrant whatever and it's just yet another thing that's going in the wrong direction yeah 29 million dollars a day towards housing people would um make the city a great place to be honest uh would be a great shift of resources but what do we know yeah all right thank you for listening to objection to the rule on radio free brooklyn we're going to our first musical break this is look by lakaylee 47 we'll be right back ponytail dragon we up in this bitch what's cracking minimal bragging because you could damn well see we ain't lacking lights camera ready for that action Lights, camera ready for that action. Tags, snatching. Designer on designer, it's a habit. Cause baby, it's a look. It's a look. It's a look. It's a look. Don't you see me? Cause baby, it's a look. It's a look. It's a look. It's a look. Can you see me? Cause baby, it's a look. Caviar, collard greens. I keep it real hood in my powder jeans. My rings, high beams. Cut through dark like lightning. I'm like a slow jam on a right beat. I'm like a slow jam on a right beat. Brownsville, Bev Hills. I be everywhere in this cashmere, baby. It's a look. It's a look. It's a look. It's a look. Don't you see it? Cause baby, it's a look. It's a look. It's a look. It's a look. Can you see me? Cause baby, it's a look. It's a look. It's a look. It's a look. Don't you see it? Cause baby, it's a look. It's a look. It's a look. It's a look. Can you see me? Cause baby, it's a look. My house is catty cornered. Can't say that I ain't one her. Egyptian cotton thread count popping flats in California. Face look like I got work. I'm booked for the year you hurt. I'm in the scripture, getting richer. Crib look like a church. Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. 
We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And for our national news story, um, most of this information comes from Politico. Uh, The title of this article is D.C. Police Officer Charged with Obstruction Over Contacts with Proud Boys Leader Terrio. This was written by Kyle Cheney. And it's it's fairly short, so I am going to read the whole thing. A day after the January 6th attack on the Capitol, Proud Boys leader Enrique Terrio texted a contact in the Washington, D.C. Police Department. I think I could have stopped this whole thing. That admission from Terrio is at the center of newly unsealed charges against Metropolitan Police Department Lieutenant Shane Lamond who was facing obstruction of justice and false statement charges for allegedly concealing incriminating contacts with Terrio from law enforcement, even in the days after the attack. Prosecutors revealed that Lamond replied to Terrio's contention by alluding to podcaster Alex Jones, a Terrio ally who was seen on January 6th exhorting the crowd with a bullhorn. I don't know, bro. You know it's fucking bad when person six was the voice of reason and they wouldn't listen to him, Lamont said. He got on the bullhorn and urged everyone to stop attacking the police and march around the U.S. Capitol and they ignored him. And just a note, person six is in um, parentheses. That's what, you know, I guess because it's an ongoing investigation, that's how they refer to different individuals. Terrio later replied, yeah, but I have guys I can line up. He doesn't. The exchange is the latest twist in the long-running investigation of the Proud Boys' role in the January 6th attack. Terrio and three associates were convicted earlier this month of conspiring to forcibly derail the transfer of power from former President Donald Trump to President Joe Biden, capping a four-month trial in which prosecutors portrayed the Proud Boys as the most significant drivers of the violence and chaos on January 6th. Lamond, who was arrested Friday, was a ubiquitous presence in the trial, though he didn't actually testify. Terrio repeatedly referenced his contacts with Lamond to contend he had a positive working relationship with law enforcement and would never marshal a mob to attack them. But prosecutors portrayed Terrio and Lamond's contacts in a more sinister light. After Terrio burned a Black Lives Matter banner during unrest in Washington at a December 12, 2020 pro-Trump rally, Lamond repeatedly updated Terrio on the status of the investigation, including that an arrest warrant had been signed just days before January 6th. Terrio relayed those details to other members of Proud Boys leadership, warning them that his arrest was likely when he headed to D.C. ahead of January 6th. Lamond also repeatedly updated Terrio on whether the charges against him might be elevated to a hate crime. In the charging documents Friday, prosecutors said Lamond never told colleagues about Terrio's admissions related to the flag burning. Lamond's four false statement charges all pertain to the federal investigation of the Proud Boys. Prosecutors say he repeatedly misled investigators about the frequency and manner of his contacts with Terrio. 
which shifted toward encrypted text messages as January 6th approached. According to records obtained by the Justice Department, Terrio and Lamond exchanged 500 communications between July 19, 2019, when the two first became associates, and January 2021. In their post-January 6 exchanges, Terrio also informed Lamond that a woman he knew from Maryland, identified only as Person 7 in the indictment, might be of interest to people investigating the Capitol attack. After receiving Terrio's information about Person 7, Lamont used his law enforcement contacts to obtain a list of individuals that the FBI had identified as subjects in the federal investigation. After receiving the list on Telegram, Lamont wrote to Terrio, nope, not on our list. Prosecutors say Lamont never informed law enforcement that Terrio had identified a potential January 6th suspect. The obstruction charge against Lamont brought under the D.C. Code rather than federal law, carries a 30-year maximum sentence. The federal false statement charges each carry a five-year maximum sentence. Uh, and this is just, this is a little more um, information from the Associated Press. Uh, this is an excerpt from the article entitled, Police Officer Charged with Lying About Leaks to Proud Boys Leader. Uh, the article is written by Michael Kunselman. Lindsay Whitehurst and Alana Durkin Richer. Uh, so these are some messages that Lamont sent to Enrique Terrio. Looks like the feds are locking people up for rioting at the Capitol. I hope none of your guys were among them, Lamont told Terrio in a telegram message two days after the siege. So far from what I'm seeing and hearing, we're good, Terrio replied. Great to hear, Lamont wrote. Of course, I can't say it officially, but personally, I support you all and don't want to see your group's name and reputation dragged through the mud. Lamont was placed on administrative leave by the police force in February 2022. Lamont, who supervised the intelligence branch of the police department's Homeland Security Bureau, was responsible for monitoring groups like the Proud Boys when they came to Washington. So yeah, have you been following this at all, Matthew? Had you heard of this connection or this arrest? Yeah, so back when uh, Twitter was functioning as a relatively good kind of news source, um, I followed a bunch of like lawyers and just uh, people who follow white supremacists um, in like very investigative reporting. And I saw this come up. But the, one of the funniest things that you just mentioned of like they, they charged them, I think, under the DC code which I believe the Republicans just voted down and like Biden vetoed and things to like, they were wanting to update their code to come in line with things. So I think this, I don't know what it means specifically for this, but I wonder if there would have been a harsher penalty or a least harsh penalty um, if they had been able to implement it like a reformed code. Um, But also, yeah, I mean, so many of these white supremacist hate groups are filled with law enforcement. Who, these are who they are. Um, it's just a different kind of hood and robe. Um, I think there's been a lot of reporting coming where we're seeing so many January, January 6th uh, insurrectionists be part of the military, the National Guard, various uh, police uh, departments. And the list keeps going and growing. And these people working at like the high levels of 
where they have access to classified information. These are the people like running the police departments and stuff, and that's how they police accordingly. Uh, it's really nasty, but these people are also fucking idiots, to be quite honest. The way they just like openly carry on and think they are invincible, but I'm just thankful for some of that, so that way they do get caught. I mean, well, the flip side of that is they can be so blatant and all of this is so obvious because the powers that be are not against it, you know, whether it's Democrat or Republican. Like, I think the Republicans are at this point, like a very openly like fascist party, but then you have Democrats in name only in a lot of cases that are also racist they're also against um any real genuine moves like for true like equity and justice in this country so they will allow for these groups to carry on with impunity like we've seen in new york city even um like this proud boys group thing like these members like being waived speaking of fair evasion like they have police officers holding the exit doors open Mm -hmm. for them after they've been threatening children and others with violence and people who are, um, you know, protesting to protect abortion rights, they openly encourage it and allow these people to ride for free on the subway to then go on and terrorize um, oppressed groups, you know? So it's really... Yeah. It's definitely not surprising, and it's sad because them being so, because he thought Telegram was doing something. It's like, listen, did. <laughs> if the feds want to know what you're doing, they're gonna, they already know before you know, and he should know because he is a fed. He is the intelligence gatherer. Hello. Like, come on. like no, I, but it's like, oh, like let me switch to this. They'll never know. Uh, uh, uh. Talk about filling upwards. How did this man get up that high? Come on. Like, someone should have been like, he doesn't know what the hell he's talking about at some point. Um, But yeah, you're right. Like, Adams is pro-cop. He is a cop. Of course he's pro-cop. I believe it was at the CUNY law graduation when they turned their backs on him booing. He's like, I wore the badge on the badge on my chest. And it's like, yeah, you terrorized the city, New Jersey resident. Thank you. We know that. Um, you're not this moral, righteous person just because you invoke your God every now and then. It wasn't. It, it was like his reverend who just like got indicted for like fraud. Like Man, they, these are his gods. <laughs> like he's surrounded by criminals. Yep, and he is a criminal. He got in trouble for. Isn't he in hot water again for like something with campaign finance? The FEC, I believe. Yeah, he just got hit with like a twenty thousand violate twenty thousand dollar violation. I think. Um, yeah, because he's a he's a criminal too, <laughs> right? But back to DC. Yeah. Like, I'm not gonna lie. Like as much as it's not news and it's not surprising, it still is very much. It's it's disturbing and it gives me like a sinking feeling, you know, because these groups are so emboldened. They are so, um, what's the word it's like they have this bloodlust and this desire to just be destructive and you know it's similar to like if you read history you know these people that were running the streets like in you know fascist germany and fascist italy like getting hyped up off of the thrill of committing random street violence against quote-unquote undesirables and like we're seeing that being ramped up these days, being propped up by formal 
um, authorities not being taken seriously, being encouraged. And this is just the latest example of that. And I would like to add for those who do not know, Enrique Terrio is, I don't know if he considers himself black, but looking at him, he is very much visibly a Negro with a Spanish name. And sadly, like this Proud Boys group, it does include, um, it's a white supremacist violent gang. And it shows that it's sadly like a rainbow coalition because you do have people within that group who are not white, but they are like violent, racist, misogynists that will turn on their own groups. You know, they want to be white, even if they aren't, and they're willing to do whatever to fit in. They're anti-woman, anti-queer, like anti-anything that's, you know, what we who are more progressive stand for. And it's it's very frightening and it's not something to be taken lightly at all. Yeah, and it's very jarring too, uh, especially like being Mexican-American and like the most recent, one of the most recent mass shooters like was a white supremacist and like people's, an ability to understand that is not good. And like, there is a push to eradicate that sort of understanding of what white supremacy is and who enables it and practices it regardless of their own identity that they may or may not um, want or identify with. Um, but yeah. And may, even going back to this kind of concept of where this man got caught, um, there are the others who are very good at their job who are high up and, do hide all of this and are still participating in it. These groups are thriving. Um, they are becoming more, yeah, empowered, emboldened, like you said. Um, and it's scary because the government is using them. They're using a vigilante force a lot of the times now too. Um, in Florida, DeSantis is like trying to bring the Florida National Guard as like his personal kind of enforcement, which is very scary. Um, they're using these people to enforce, these are the people who are going to do the enforcement, civilian enforcement in Texas to hunt down people getting abortions. These are those groups and they're tied into the enforcement. It's all the same kind of system. Um, and as we see the increase in police here, like it's all tied together and it's very scary how far up these people are um, because they are in the FBI, they are in the police departments um, and they're working with them and they're coordinated. It's scary. Yeah. It's that um that lyric from the Rage Against the Machine song, like some of those who work forces are the same who burn crosses. And mm -hmm. you know, that's been true from the very founding of these law enforcement agencies. Mm -hmm. You know, think about what the laws they were enforcing were like when mm -hmm. they started out anti-black anti-woman you know legislating that crime is really about who you are not what you do mm. you know it's about certain like look at what happened with jordan neely it's mm -hmm. like people's perception of what a criminal is is very much about race and class and gender how you conform to certain norms, that's what they truly think it is. And that's what, when they talk about crime and criminals, that's what they mean. Because there's so many people like wasting away on Rikers or whatever because they stole some deodorant or some shit. And then look at what this man is doing or has been arrested for doing. And he's walking around, probably won't see a day inside of a jail cell. 
because of who he is and what he represents and so many of those people on rikers are like pre-trial like it's like pre-detention stuff yeah like without any rights no lawyers or family don't know where they are and they they die without a trial without any like due process it's yeah and even it's like you're socially dead and then even if you do get out what kind of life are you likely to have after Mm -hmm. you have been put in that situation if you don't have you know if you're not from the right class situation you're not the right color it's very bleak um and i i don't know if you've heard it but there's an i listened to this american life pretty faithfully um and it's almost six years ago they had an episode called white haze uh white h-a-z-e and it's a very good episode it was like um after the 2016 election and it's a deep dive into like what are the proud boys and like these other right wing groups before they i guess before they they became as big as they are now and it traces like their origin and like what they claim to believe versus what they actually do and it's it's an important you know piece of um i guess oral history uh, for the moment we're in now. So we'll share a link to that on our Instagram and also on our Facebook page. And I'll send it to you, Matthew, if you haven't listened to it. White Haze. It can be a difficult listen, but I think it's an important one because, you know, we can't, you can't face something like you can't change something. You can't address it if you're not going to face it and like be real about who your enemy is you know putting your head in the sand and pretending these things aren't happening is not going to help any of us um so on that note uh you are listening to objection to the rule on radio free brooklyn and matthew we're going to play a song by one of your favorite bands uh, this is the almost 20 year old song sugar we're going down by fall yeah. out great choice <laughs> We'll be right back.
follow our social media accounts. We have an Instagram account and we also have a Facebook account. Our Facebook page can be found at facebook.com forward slash objection radio free BK. No spaces, no punctuation. Our Instagram account is at objection to the rule. Again, no spaces, no punctuation marks. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn, and here is Reese with our world news story. All right, so this um, article is from foreignpolicy.com. Um, it's a, from a, like a little less than a month ago, but I thought it was a really good um, explanation of this concept. The title of the article is The BRICS Currency Could Shake the Dollar's Dominance. De-dollarization's moment might finally be here. The author is Joseph W. Sullivan. Talk of de-dollarization is in the air. Last month in New Delhi, Alexander Babakov, deputy chairman of Russia's state Duma, said that Russia is now spearheading the development of a new currency. It is to be used for cross-border trade by the BRICS nations. BRICS is an acronym that stands for Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. Weeks later in Beijing, Brazil's president, Luis Nacio Lula da Silva chimed in. Every night, he said, he asked himself why all countries have to base their trade on the dollar. These developments complicate the narrative that the dollar's reign is stable because it is the one-eyed money in a land of blind individual competitors like the euro, yen, and yuan. As one economist put it, Europe is a museum, Japan is a nursing home, and China is a jail. He's not wrong. But a oh my god! I know <laughs> what. <laughs> pretty deep, pretty deep. It's an inter- It's the truth, and it is the saddest part about it. But Lord, yeah. back to the article. <laughs> but a BRICS issued currency would be different. It'd be like a new union of up and coming discont- discontents, who, on a scale of GDP, now collectively outweigh not only the reigning hegemon, the United States, but the entire G7 weight class put together. Foreign governments wanting to liberate themselves from reliance on the US dollar are anything but new. Murmurs in foreign capitals about a desire to dethrone the dollar have been making headlines since the 1960s, but the talk has yet to turn into results. But one measure, by one measure, the dollar is now used in 84.3% of cross-border trade compared to just 4.5% for the Chinese yuan. And the Kremlin's habitual use of lies as an instrument of stagecraft offers ground for skepticism skepticism about anything Russia says. On a litany of practical questions like how much the other BRICS nations are on board with Babakov's proposal, for now, answers remain unclear. Nevertheless, at least based on economics, a BRICS issue currency prospects for success are new. However, early plans for it are, however early plans for it are, and however many practical questions remain unanswered, such a currency really could dislodge the US dollar as the reserve currency of BRICS members. Unlike competitors proposed in the past, like the digital yuan, the hypothetical currency actually has a potential to up, upsurge or at least shake the dollar's place on the throne. Let's call it the hypothetical currency, the brick. 
If the BRICS used only brick for international trade, they would remove any impediment that now thwarts their efforts to escape dollar hegemony. Those efforts now often take the form of bilateral agreements to dominate trade in non-dollar currency like yuan, now the main currency of trade between Russia and China. The impediment, Russia is unwilling to source the rest of its imports from China. So after bilateral transactions between the two countries, Russia tends to walk to tends to walk to park the proceeds and dollar denominated assets to buy the rest of its imports from the rest of the world, which still uses the dollars for trade. If China and Russia each use only the brick for trade, however, Russia would not have any need to park the proceeds of bilateral trade in dollars. After all, Russia would be using bricks, not dollars, to buy the rest of its imports. Imports. Enter at last de-dollarization. Is it realistic to imagine the BRICS only using the brick for trade? Yes. For starters, they could fund the entirety of their import bills by themselves. In 2022 as a whole, the BRICS ran a trade surplus, also known as a balance of payment surplus, of $387 billion, mostly thanks to China. The BRICS would also be poised to achieve a level of self-sufficiency in international trade that has eluded the world's other currency unions. Because a BRICS currency union, unlike any before it, would be among countries united by shared territorial borders, its, would, its members would likely be able to produce a wider range of goods than any existing monetary union. An artifact of geog geographic diversity that is an opening for a degree of self-sufficiency that has painfully eluded currency unions defined by geographic concentration, like the Eurozone, also home to $476 billion trade deficit in 2022. But the BRICS will not even need to trade only with each other because each member of the BRICS group, grouping is an economic heavyweight on its own, in its own region. Countries around the world will likely be willing to do business in BRIC. If Thailand felt compelled to use the BRIC to do business with China, Brazil's importers could still purchase shrimp from Thai exporters, keeping Thailand shrimp in Brazil's, on Brazil's menus. Goods produced in one country could also circumvent trade restrictions between two countries by being exported to and then re-exported from a third country. That's often a consequence of new trade restrictions like tariffs. If the United States boycotted bilateral trade with China rather than trade in the brick, its children could continue to play with Chinese-made toys that became exports to countries like Vietnam and then exports to the United States. So I'm going to stop right there. Um, are you familiar with BRICS, the whole BRICS controversy or anything about it? Um, not the, I haven't been following with the de-dollarization discourse or anything, but I'm familiar with the acronym that they're um, major like like world powers that are like on their way to become like supplanting the U.S. or something based on like where they are with their population right. and economy and development and all of that. But I didn't know about um, BRICS as in like this new currency possibility. Yeah, so I just recently learned about um, BRICS and what they're doing, I think, um, is really relevant for us to talk about because the reality is that the dollar has been in dominance for so long that there is no other way for any country to overturn the U.S.'s hold on the world. 
you know, and if all these countries come together, another article I read said there's almost 15 nations that are seeking entrance into the BRICS group. They had a, um, a summit that's going to happen in June 2nd uh, in South Africa. And some of these countries that want to join, um, which is quite a few of them, some of them have already seeked like whatever they need to do to join and others are just interested. They will come to this conference and begin these discussions. The reality is as the BRICS group grows with these smaller nations, they're the amount of the economy that they all control collectively could outweigh um, the GDP of America. Um, and that, and they're not only talking about the currency themselves, they're also about talking about trading goods, um, which I think would be awesome because it would help those smaller nations who unfortunately don't have access to all the same things would be able to have more access or less access or export more things you know, um, to bring more economy to those countries. But unfortunately, I I guess it's not unfortunate. I'm actually for this. I'm for the whole BRICS nation. I hope that it doesn't turn into, you know, like a a global fight, which obviously it will, because that's what the U.S. like to do. They like to fight when they don't get their way. But, or if they get their way. But the reality is, you know, I think that it is a, it is time for the hegemony to be challenged in this way. And for these countries to be coming together to do so, eventually it's going to ruffle some feathers because a lot of the smaller countries and nations that want to join the BRICS group have um, different sort of partnerships with the G7 groups. And they're saying that those are that's going to start to cause disruption between our country and, say, you know, some country that we do business with, uh, with Saudi Arabia or something like that with all of the oil that we get and all of the drama, if they join the BRICS group, then that can really cause tension and also uh, invoke doubt, you know, in these uh, partnerships and connections that the G7 countries have. So I just thought this was a good story because I think we all need to be informed um, what is happening and to read up on it. I don't know what the terms are to enter the BRICS group, but I think that these smaller nations that are trying to find an alliance, it's going to happen. And who knows what the world will look like in a couple of years. Yeah. I mean, all I have to add is, you know, you know, that song sugar, we're going down sugar, we're going down swing it like the U S <laughs> let me tell you something. It's like life expectancy and all this other stuff. It is not trending up. It's trending down. Like I think a lot of people are not, um, like this country has been a superpower and like the, the global hegemon for a long time, but it's definitely on its way out from that position. But it'll be interesting and I don't necessarily think in a good way to see like how the U.S. kind of responds to this reality because, you know, power never just quietly goes away. I do. I agree with you. Like it is a it is a huge like news story that I will try to follow with um, follow up with more because. Yeah, we're in a time of transition for sure. These some of these countries that have interest, you know, their their influence in trade and things like that and the goods that we import into this country from all of these places, um, it could be significant if they just stopped. You know, I don't see anybody stop doing business with the U.S., but just something to think about. I mean, if, if I was 
in one of these smaller South South American countries with all the trauma they have, I definitely would be interested in connecting to um, a group of, you know, world powers that may in some way be more supportive than me in my time of need. You know, this this whole article was talking about trade and money and currency, but the the reality is the the geopolitical, like where they are in the world and the need for, you know, resources. If country A and country B is right next door to each other and they both are part of BRICS, be imagine how much more unity and peace can happen if they were to participate um, from a human standpoint and not just all about the money. So that's my soapbox this Sunday. <laughs> okay, well, he who lives shall see. It might it might be taking them a while, but I have no doubt that it's definitely going to come to pass and the dollar is no longer, I don't believe it's pinned to the value of gold anymore. So it's kind of in flux in a way that it didn't used to be when it was pinned to something more concrete. But yeah, that's another thing that uh, some of the articles about the BRICS Nations currency talks about is that it's built off of like natural resources and commodities like gold. It's not just standing on its own so matthew what did you think about this um this information i mean not being so well read on global economy or trade um honestly anything to take down the u.s dollar a little bit i'm okay with that like i feel like we keep running around the globe like we are the best and like from what the article and reese uh, were describing the u.s dollar would still remain this kind of presents an alternative to other people it's probably not great that Russia is so deeply involved there to power them, but I mean, the USA is kind of a mon- capitalist monster right now, so who are we to speak about other global economies and trades? Um, I'd be curious to know of a, like a breakdown from maybe a more leftist approach on this and what it could mean. No, for sure. Like, I, I know what you mean. I'm not the best when it comes to, like, these systems are obviously, like, very complex. Uh-huh. But I do feel like we in America, in the U.S., like, we are, we're in the imperial core that mm-hmm. we're accustomed to or that people take for granted. And we need to rapidly change like our expectations for like how life is supposed to be because it's sustainable it's not upheld by anything that's good for the planet good for humanity so but i i can't like you're saying like i can't really say that this other thing (laughs) will either because it's not like you know look brazil just got them like a regular president just just recently the last one was like so like they're still recovering from their own damage right now yeah it's all i there's such bigger implications that i'm sure like it's just beyond me to even comprehend you know the current world order is clearly not doing us any good like we're having you know rapid you know growth of like all these fascist wealth you know accelerating forces globally so what we're used to is not working it's not good but you don't want to be what they call like a tanky where Mm -hmm. then you automatically are like anything that is anti-us is automatically like a net good right because you know if the goal is to do what the us has been doing then you're just switching (laughs) out one for the other 
Again, it didn't work the first time, so don't do that. Yeah. I know. It's like we don't need the remix. Nope. No, we're good. We it, It's not working. We need it to stop. Um, so we did a show. Thanks Ooh. for being with us. Thanks for helping me out, Matthew. Always a pleasure. Happy to chat on a rainy day. It's nice yeah. to talk with others on a little drowsy day. Yeah, dreary day. That's the word. And um, so, yeah, please stay tuned for more community-based radio on Radio Free Brooklyn. And for our last song, we're going to play you out with Money by Pink Floyd. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. Have a great day. like to listen to Radio Free Brooklyn when you're not in front of your computer, please download our free mobile app for iPhone and Android, available in the App Store for iPhone or the Google Play Store for Android. Also, please be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news about new programming and upcoming Radio Free Brooklyn events. You can sign up at radiofreebrooklyn.org forward slash newsletter.